Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me to Romans chapter 10, Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been in a series of messages throughout this book, and we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 10 this morning. Romans chapter 10. We'll look at verses 10, or excuse me, verses 1 through 13 of Romans chapter 10. And by way of introduction, you remember that uh, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans form what we consider a unit of the book. And they all address the problem of Jewish unbelief in the Messiah, the apparent refusal of the Jews to be saved. In chapter 9, the emphasis was on God's purpose according to election. Paul made that clear in the three messages that we had in that chapter. In chapter 10, the emphasis is on the human factors. That is, the need for an understanding of God's righteousness and the proclamation of the gospel and the need for a response of faith. Those are the three major themes that we'll see in this particular section of the chapter. In chapter 10, Paul turns from the past to the present. From his explanation of the Israelites' unbelief to his hope, that they will hear and believe the gospel. And he will elaborate further on this vision for the future in chapter 11. But for this morning, I'd like us to notice four things about God's righteousness. Four things that Paul, I believe, mentions concerning God's righteousness. And the outline would go like this. Number one, I want you to notice the ignorance of God's righteousness. That's in verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, the essence of God's righteousness, and we find that in verse 4. And thirdly, the simplicity and accessibility of God's righteousness in verses 5 through 10. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. And then fourthly, and, or excuse me, fourthly and finally, the recipients of God's righteousness. And we see that in verses 11 through 13. So along with the synopsis of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time together. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would move on every one of our hearts. Draw those who don't know you, Lord, to a personal knowledge of Christ your Son. And those that do know you, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us in our walk with you. So, Lord, bless us all now as you see fit. And we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice the ignorance of God's righteousness in verses 1 through 3. You see, first of all, Paul's desire, my heart's desire, and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You will find a statement like this at the beginning of chapter 9, at the beginning here in chapter 10, and at the beginning of chapter 11. All three of these chapters begin with Paul's intense concern that his Jewish counterparts, brothers and sisters, would come to faith in Jesus Christ even as he did. And ladies and gentlemen, let me say this. A desire like Paul's is born from a genuine salvation in knowing God. If you truly know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you cannot help 
but some way, somehow, to communicate that information to someone else. And Paul's deep-down desire, when he sees those fellow Jews who do not believe, he wants them to experience what he's experienced. He wants them to know what it is to feel forgiven of your sins. He wants them to know what it means to be reconciled to the living God, to have fellowship with Him every day. Paul desires these things for his Jewish counterparts, and we ought to desire the same as Christians amongst our family members, our work associates, those who we go to school with and we recreate with. We need to have a desire like Paul's to see others come to faith. You'll notice, secondly, he speaks of zeal. He says, I have a zeal without knowledge, a zeal that is not in accordance with true knowledge. Now, Paul, no doubt, uh, he no, has no doubt of their religious sincerity. He can testify about them from his own experience as they are zealous for God. Paul himself was zealous. You can read about that in the New Testament. He says it himself. I thought I needed to do many things to oppose the name of Jesus. And that he was zealous to keep the law and zealous in his persecution of the church. Yet the scripture says, it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. Proverbs 19.2. Sincerity is not enough. You can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. You may be sincerely mistaken. The proper word for zeal without knowledge, commitment without reflection, or enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. Fanaticism. And a fanatic is a horrid and dangerous state to be in. I find that sometimes in my neighborhood with door-to-door sales. You know, they're a little fanatical. They come to my door and they want to sell me everything from uh, uh, panes uh, for solar heating that go on my house or new windows or something else. And I say, no, thank you. And they persist and they go on and they try to cajole me. And I say, no, thank you. And I continue to say, no, thank you. Then the dog runs out, and i got to go chase her. And I say, no, again. They don't seem to hear me. And sometimes I want to say that. Young man, you have a zeal without knowledge. You're not knowledgeable of your prospective customer. How annoyed he is. And how he desperately wants to go back into the house. And finally, I do go back in the house rather rudely as the person continues to say, but this. But what about this? He won't stop. Zeal without knowledge is not good. And Paul is saying that the zeal that he sees in his brothers and sisters, fellow Jews, is frightening because they don't have the knowledge. They don't know the truth. And you'll notice that this inevitably leads to a self-righteousness. Look at verse 3. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You see, if you don't have a standard, If you don't understand that God has made it possible for us to be righteous apart from our good deeds, apart from anything that we would do, if you don't understand that, inevitably, you will be led to try to establish your own righteousness. And Isaiah says that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag in front of a holy God. So if that's the case, how could anyone ever establish their own righteousness before this holy God. It's impossible. Well, that is the ignorance of righteousness. Now notice in verse 4, the single verse, Paul gives the essence of God's righteousness. Look at verse 4. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The fundamental error of those who are seeking to establish their own righteousness is that they have not understood Paul's next affirmation in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does Paul mean by that? Well, the Greek word for end is telos. And it means end or fulfillment or completion. And this verse goes hand in hand with Matthew 5, 17. You remember when Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, no one could ever fulfill the demands of the law because the law pointed to the perfections of Jesus Christ. Christ kept the law perfectly. He never sinned. For 33 years of his life, never sinned in thought, word, or deed. And we partake of that sinless righteousness when we believe in him, when we trust Christ alone by faith. We enter into that righteousness. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfilled the law's demands and effectively ended any notion of salvation by law-keeping. See, the fascinating thing is some people think, well, Old Testament saints were saved by law and New Testament saints are saved by the gospel. No. No, 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 no. Everyone is saved by faith. Old Testament saints simply didn't have the object of faith yet, but they looked forward to the coming of this Christ, whoever he would be. We on this side of the cross have the privilege to look back on the cross. And so, those who were saved, both in the Old and New Testaments, are saved by grace through faith. We can see that in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But the essence of God's righteousness here is Christ. Christ takes away any supposed righteousness by obedience to the law of God. You can't attain righteousness that way. And so, we have to look to Christ for him to clothe us in his righteousness, that we may be declared not guilty before a holy God. Now, in verses 5 and following, all the way through verse 8, we see the simplicity and the accessibility of God's righteousness. If Christ is the essence of God's righteousness, then how do I obtain that righteousness? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let's explore that for a few minutes. First of all, he gives righteousness based on God's law. Look at verse 5. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Here Paul is outlining the difficulty and the impossibility of trying to attain righteousness based on the law. We could say based on the Ten Commandments. And he quotes Moses from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which says, quote, You shall therefore keep the statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, the natural interpretation of Moses' words is that the way to life or the way to salvation is obeying the law. This is how Paul himself understood the sentence when he quoted it in Galatians 3, 11 through 22. Paul said in verse 11, or excuse me, 11 and 12, Paul said, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And Paul is saying that no one has succeeded in obeying the law. 
Now, the law has no weakness. The weakness is in us. The weakness is our flesh. Instead of bringing life, our disobedience to the law brings us under a curse. You remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Righteousness uh, is not to be found by law-keeping. Even God gave a verbal command to Adam and Eve. You can eat from any tree of the garden, just don't eat from this one. And life was offered to them, but they failed. And they plunged the whole human race into sin. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, look, it's not only hard to be saved by law-keeping, it's impossible. You cannot attain to righteousness by obeying the law. Why? Because no human being has ever kept the law perfectly. And that's what must happen. Perfect personal obedience. In fact, James, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. That's the infinite perfection of the God we worship. He says, if you break one commandment, you've broken all the commandments because perfection is no longer there. Paul has already made it clear in Romans 3 that the law cannot serve as a basis for righteousness due to our sinful condition. And so he presents Moses from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5 here. Now watch what he does in verses 6 and following. Paul makes it plain here the simplicity and the accessibility of righteousness based on faith. It's the exact opposite of what he says in verse 5. And notice again, he quotes Moses from a different place. Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. And he says, in essence, discovering God's righteousness is not a matter of human effort. It is not hidden or concealed. It is attainable and available to everyone who believes. Moses tells the Israelites that the commandment he is giving them is not too hard for you and that it is not too far from you. You see that in our Old Testament reading for today, Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. And some might say, is Paul's use of the words in conflict with Moses? In other words, he's saying, Moses said this in Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5, but Moses also said this in Deuteronomy, chapter 30. So do we have a contradiction here? No. No, there's no contradiction. You see, Moses assumes in chapter 30 that the Word of God is both in the mouth and the heart of the Israelites. If you look at that final verse, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14, we see that not only is it a verbal confession, but it's in the heart. He assumes that the Israelites love God and His Word. And therefore, they will devote themselves to a life of following Jehovah by faith. You see, this is what the Old Testament saints did. I could bring up Abraham, Noah, Moses, of course, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, and a host of others who were Old Testament saints who followed Jehovah by faith. They trusted Him. And by trusting Him, they're the Word of God became very precious in their heart. It was in their heart, not just on their lips. It was in their heart to obey. And furthermore, we know that from John's Gospel, the Word of God became flesh. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so in summary, Moses commands the Israelites to obey God's Word in Leviticus 18. But here he makes it clear in Deuteronomy 30 that God's Word must not only be in the mouth, 
on one's tongue, but also in the heart. This is the only possible, or this is only made possible through faith. And Paul uses Moses' words to demonstrate the fulfillment of God's word in the hearts and lives of his children through faith in Jesus Christ. It's fascinating how Moses says, look, you don't have to go here to find this. It's not too difficult for you to find because the gospel is simple. The gospel says all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. The only perfect law keeper is the lawgiver, the Lord Jesus himself, as the infinite Son of God. And he came and lived a life of perfect obedience, and then he died on the cross for all of your infractions and mine against the law of God. And he says, I will clothe you in my righteousness if you will trust me if you will begin a relationship with me. And the only reason that we do that is because the Spirit of God opens our hearts to understand that we must have the perfect righteousness of Christ to stand before a holy God. It's easily accessible. That's what Paul is trying to point out here. Even Moses in the Old Testament saying, look, if you believe Jehovah, if you trust Him, you will be saved. It's simple. It's close. It's accessible. Paul comes along and saying, it's even more personal than that now. They look forward to the coming of Messiah. We know who He is, Jesus Christ. And He came and He lived and He died and He rose again from the dead so that we might have life. It's simple and it's accessible. That's why in verses 9 and 10, he says, Jesus Christ must be the object of one's faith and belief. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Seems so simple, doesn't it? It really is. And yet there are many people that go through life without this knowledge. And they try to establish their righteousness before God. They do their best to demonstrate themselves better than their neighbor. But it doesn't matter how good we are on that scale. Because God doesn't grade on a curve. There is one standard, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said in Romans 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus came and lived and died in order to make us acceptable. Because in Christ, we are clothed with God's righteousness. And here in verses 9 and 10, as the law of God reached its fulfillment and culmination in Christ, so also the entire word or testimony of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Paul instructs us, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. The heart and mouth, thus inward belief and outward confession. Confession without faith is vain. There are a lot of people that talk about Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Oh, precious Jesus, that sort of thing. But they don't trust him. They don't trust him. And so confession without faith is vain. And faith without a confession is spurious. I've heard people say that before. Well, my faith is a personal thing. You know. Well, that's not the case in the Bible. It may be personal to you in terms of your interaction with Jesus, 
But it's also very obvious to others when you join a church and you bear witness to Christ publicly. Confession without faith is vain. Faith without confession is spurious. And through all of this, Paul demonstrates that the gospel of Christ is neither too hard, that is too difficult or complicated, or too far away, that is unreachable, for sinners to be saved. Paul emphasizes the close, ready, easy accessibility of Christ and his gospel. Why should we be surprised by that? You see it over and over again in the New Testament and the Gospels. Jesus is a friend of sinners. doesn't matter where a person's been or what they've done. He invites them to come to him. Whether it be Zacchaeus, the tax collector, or Matthew in the very tax booth collecting taxes. Jesus goes where others wouldn't. And he draws out sinners. And he gives them his perfect righteousness and forgiveness of all their sins. What a wonderful position to be in where you don't walk around carrying guilt because of something that you did or neglected to do. Christ forgives all sins. And he doesn't hold those against us. And so Paul emphasizes the simplicity and the accessibility of the righteousness that is by faith in contrast to the impossibility of achieving righteousness that is by law. What kind of righteousness do you have this morning? Notice fourthly and finally the recipients of God's righteousness. Look at verses 11 through 13. He stresses that Christ not only easily accessible, but equally accessible to all. To anyone in verse 11. To everyone in verse 13. Since according to verse 12, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, and no favoritism. Let's look at those uh, verses individually. Verse 11, we trust in him, and we will never be put to shame. Some of the translations say, never be disappointed. It comes from Isaiah 28, 16. The designation of saving faith as trust is demonstrated here. And that means that verses 9 and 10 are not to be understood as mere subscriptions. You don't just subscribe to something. You subscribe to a magazine. You don't just subscribe to Jesus. You believe him with all your heart. You believe that he's alive and real and that he'll come to live inside of you and that you have a relationship with him. And that you long for his presence at all times. And the older you get in Christ, the more you enjoy his presence. You will not be disappointed. It's bulletproof. We think about all the things that we try to build our lives on in this world. Our health, our money, our retirement, our family members. And inevitably, they disappoint, don't they? You have bitter disappointment when a son or a daughter turns away and rejects you. You can be upset when you had plans to do this in your retirement years, but all of a sudden, those plans are demolished as a result of illness. You can lose your job. Where a spouse that you love for many years all of a sudden decides they don't want to be with you anymore. Life is filled with letdowns and disappointments. But Jesus Christ will never, ever disappoint you. He will satisfy you. That's why the Bible says, God opens His hand and satisfies the desires of every living Everything else and everyone else in this life will give you some degree, to a lesser or greater degree, disappointment. But not Jesus, when you trust Him. 
In verse 12, we call on him and we are richly blessed. Look at verse 12 with me. It's a marvelous affirmation that through Christ there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Now, distinctions are not completely abolished. They become irrelevant. In other words, we still acknowledge male and female. Just in the body of Christ, they're equal. We see each other as sons and daughters of God. There's no slave and free. The church of Jesus Christ should demonstrate an inclusive spirit more than any other institution in life. And what I mean by that is, when we see a sinner come to faith in Christ and repent, we ought to welcome them, no matter who they are or where they've been, and love them. The world's idea of inclusion is simply no life change. Just come be a part of us. But that's a disservice to the individual. You must change. There must be repentance and faith in Jesus Christ from all that the Bible condemns to all that the Bible endorses. And look at verse 13. We call on the name of the Lord and He saves us. To appeal to Him to save us in accordance with who He is and what He has done. Everyone who thus calls on Him may be assured of their salvation. Wouldn't you like to know that you have faith in the Lord, that you belong to Him, a personal relationship with Him, that your sins are forgiven, and that you have a place in heaven that's secure and stable. That will change your life now here on earth. But you've got to believe. See, we live in a world that perhaps if they still identify what a sin is, they would say, well, this sin is worse than that sin, and this sin and that sin... If you look at John's Gospel in our New Testament reading today, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come to the world and will convict the world of righteousness, sin, and judgment. And verse 9, he says, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. What's the greatest sin? It's not breaking one of the Ten Commandments. It's ignoring or rejecting Jesus' invitation for you to trust Him and for Him to come and live inside of your heart so that your sins might be forgiven. You might be clothed with His righteousness. That's the chief sin, is unbelief. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you've never trusted Him and invited Him into your life and experienced that dynamic relationship with Him, I challenge you to do that this morning and begin to walk with Christ in the simplicity of faith and the closeness and intimacy of a relationship with Him. That's what this supper represents. Close, intimate fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You that the Gospel is simple and yet profound. It's not too far away. It's right next to us. If we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you, O oh Father, have raised the Son from the dead. Lord, we thank you for the closeness and the intimacy of the relationship you desire to have with us. I pray this morning that you would impact all of us, Lord, with that. That we would know you and love you and have fellowship and communion with you all the days of our life. And that would begin now, Lord, as we enjoy communion with you. So, Lord, work in our hearts that which is pleasing in your sight. And we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.